You're listening to the latest dose of Bipolar Recorder. This podcast may cause dizziness and blurred vision. Enjoy. Hey, this is Hunter Keegan. You're listening to Bipolar Recorder. This episode was so much fun to record. I had a guest come on and the conversation just went in so many different directions than I was expecting. And it was a real, real fun time to record. But also we discussed some very intense subject matter regarding mania, depression, hospitalization, and really everything in between. So without further ado, here we go. All right, my name is Hunter Keegan and I'm joined this evening by Jeff, who is a guy who I know through a local bipolar support group. And Jeff, if you would like to take a moment just to introduce yourself, maybe share your diagnosis, share anything that's on your mind, uh, go ahead. Yeah, sure, Hunter. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, Again, my name is Jeff. I have uh, bipolar disorder, one, uh, ADHD, uh, and I got hit in the head a while back uh, and Mm. have a little bit of brain damage in one of my temporal lobes, um, as well as a complex PTSD diagnosis that goes sort of goes along with the territory having been hospitalized before. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, um, that, those are definitely some pretty complicated conditions to be living with. Um, when you say that there was PTSD from hospitalization, um, w- was that an experience in the hospital that didn't uh, yeah. gel with you? Or was it, could you tell us a little more about that? Sure, glad to. So when I was first diagnosed, um, in 2003, I was 21. Um, I was basically taking too much Lexapro. My doctor uh, prescribed Lexapro for depression and then kept on doubling the dosage uh, when I would report that I was still depressed, mm-hmm. uh, but didn't really identify the other symptoms that I reported or you know, anecdotes as concerning. Uh, so the dosage kept on going up and uh, my mood kept on just, my brain kept on just revving out and I would crash and get narcoleptic, um, really dramatic uh, and so on. Uh, but ultimately when I was hospitalized, I had so much of this um, uh, medicine in my, my system that I was extremely, they called it florid mania when I got hospitalized. But when what, I got wait, into I'm, the- I'm sorry, what type of mania did they call they it? Called it they called it florid, like it was like, like you know, extreme, meaning like florid it was uh, very mania. Col- colorful. How 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 expressive I was being and, and how uh, how excited I was. Um, okay, and that's what the the EMS and the ambulance. Um, I mean, this is a long story. I can get into. Oh no, that. hey man, yeah. we we've got as much time as you want, so feel okay. free to dive in. Well, um, so yeah, I mean, I I originally went to my doctor and my general practitioner for. Because uh, I was ha- I was depressed. Um, I, it was caused by some family trauma. Basically, my dad uh, my dad's health was always always weighed on me uh, growing up, and this is about time in freshman year, sophomore year of college now. And uh, and he had a quadruple heart attack with a bypass. I'm sorry, he had a heart attack with a quadruple bypass. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't sure if he was gonna they weren't sure if he was gonna make it. So it really weighed on me because I had stayed in Richmond where I went to school. 
instead of coming home to care for him, um, you know, and I, and I felt guilty that he wasn't going to make it now. And I didn't get to spend as much time as I wanted to with my dad that I didn't grow up with. So um, that took a lot out of me. My dad had ended up recovering. Um, and then we lost a cousin in the Pentagon in September 11th. And it just seemed like my world was just crashing. And I, you know, I wasn't able to focus in school. I was having a really hard time. So I went to my GP. He prescribed Wellbutrin. It made me anxious and irritable. Um, mm -hmm. So I stopped taking it. And then he changed the, the prescription to Lexapro um, and suggested therapy. But the Lexapro didn't take at first. Uh, I didn't notice any, any benefits. So he suggested that I... And he, he sent me along to a specialist uh, who then increased the dosage from five to 10 milligrams and then eventually from 10 to 15 and then 15 to 20 over the next year and a half. Um, so that would have been about the fall of 2001. Um, and then by the winter of 2002 and three, uh, I, was, I was out of control. Um, you know, I was really manic. Um, and, you know, I had the periods of depression and mania before this, but, um, you know, I would spend a lot of money. Um, I would, I was hypersexual, though not that promiscuous. Um, I had a girlfriend at the time. And what else would I do? I just would have surges of energy and creativity. Um, and I would, you know, I was really, really big into photography at the time. So I would take some really cool pictures. I'd wrote... I wrote, you know, copious blog posts um, on everything. It just was going on in my mind. And, uh, and yeah, it was just a really interesting time. At the same time as I was, I knew, I was, well, now I know that I was sick. It was also like kind of like a fun ride at times when it wasn't at the peaks. But mm -hmm. eventually, um, after myriad other stories I could get into, I got, uh, I got chased around Richmond and, um, well, my girlfriend tried to get my parents to come down because she could tell I wasn't well. Um, the mania had basically crossed over into psychosis is what really happened. Well, and, and so just, um, I, I'm so sorry, but just to jump in for a second, but do you believe that the Lexapro is what triggered the mania? Because yeah, a lot sure. of times, yeah, and just so for our audience, sometimes antidepressants um, for people who have bipolar disorder, just taking an antidepressant alone can trigger manic symptoms, which is why for people who are diagnosed with bipolar disorder, they tend to be on an antidepressant as well as often a mood stabilizer and antipsychotic medication. So because you didn't have the mood stabilizer or the antipsychotic, the Lexapro was actually working against you and making your mm -hmm. symptoms worse, correct? Yep, that's right, Andrew. Thanks for slowing me down. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's the, okay. it was, Lexapro is an SSRI antidepressant, right? It's like a, what is it, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So it's like it, it increases the volume of serotonin available to your brain, uh, which is a, something that is uh, the neurotransmitter that helps you, helps with wakefulness and alertness. And when you're depressed, and lethargic and unmotivated, uh, more serotonin, I think, is, is uh, ideal. That's what they prescribe it for is to help you snap out of it, right? So uh, the problem is that if you have a brain like mine and you, um, you get too much serotonin, it just sends you through the roof. And you, instead of getting out of the depression that you're in, you get exuberant and, um, you know, you experience 
uh, jubilee and fascination over over things that are you know perhaps really not all that are are mundane. Uh, for me, I start to to see patterns and connections between things and people and topics, and uh, and that's when I know that my mind is playing tricks on me now because I start to see things not that aren't there. I'm not hallucinating, but um, everything has more significance. Uh, and well, some things have much more significance than they are really do. And, um, and then I start to see patterns and connections between them that, um, that set off like signals in my mind and, and mm-hmm. guide me. And it's, um, it's sometimes that they're, the, the fixations on these things are very um, are fruitful. They lead to creative processes. They output uh, cool bodies of work or, you know, blog <laughs> posts, a website, uh, an app design, uh, an essay, you know, um, you know, it's, they're fun rides. And it's, it's, and that's the thing about me. It's kind of perplexing because it's like, who's going to complain about being super happy or too happy, you know? And that's, that's kind of like at that hypomanic stage too, where things are still fairly under control. You know, you've got that Mm -hmm. elevated mood, you feel more creative, more talkative, more productive, but in a lot of cases, um, it, it doesn't necessarily like impede your social or occupational or life functioning and it almost enhances it in some ways. So this was a, right. almost like a hypomania. Then after that, did it, did it lead to full bore mania? So this was mania for me. Um, the hypomania, uh, I, I don't experience the, the patterns and connections as much. I, and hypomania for me, I... Um, I talk faster, you know, my cognition is, in, is, a, is accelerated. Um, I'm more, you know, it comes across that I'm more like magnetic socially. So I have more charisma um, hmm. and more passionate uh, as a partner and as a, as a friend and, every, and everything really. Um, it just, you get more, it, you live more intensely. But when it crosses over into mania is when I start to see the connections and things have more significance in there than they really do. It's it's a it's a blurry line, you know, but that's where I start to know that I'm disassociating um, with with reality when I'm starting to lose my grip on reality uh, because I'm seeing things and 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 uh, assigning value and meaning to stuff that really isn't necessarily all that meaningful. But um, right, kind of connecting dots that aren't there. Right, uh-huh. uh, I can actually relate to that a ton. Like everything you just said really resonated with me during my uh, first manic episode. I had like I was driving. It was in the middle of a road trip that I was on by myself, and I was driving down the highway through Georgia. I had been driving for hours and hours, and I'd just been thinking about all these different things and all these different unrelated thoughts because my mind was racing. And then all of a sudden there was like this like aha moment where everything seemed to coalesce into a perfect vision. I saw how all of the different ideas were apparently related. And it was like this really trippy feeling. Like it it was almost like a spiritual feeling in a way, finding those connections and thinking that there's connections there when in reality, um, it, I, I'm trying to think of like an example, but it would be like, oh, the last car I just passed was red. Red is the state bird, the car- red cardinal of Virginia. Exactly. Therefore, blah, 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 blah. And it kind of just keeps spiraling out from that point. Mm-hmm. It's like you're following your thought process through 
you're let's say you're following or riding a neural network in your brain you know like the memories are connected by something in common a shared context of some of some sort you know like you said uh it's a cardinal so it's red and that's the state of bird of virginia and this card's red or the sign's red and, and you, you start to see all these connections are following a, a, a thread um at least i do um mm -hmm. that usually doesn't end up making sense um, yeah. but it can be fun to like you know to pull the thread a little bit and see what happens but right um but yeah that was i told you all that context because I, I wanted to tell you what happened in the hospital because you asked a good question about where the ptsd diagnosis came from right it, it came mu much later in life than this um but when i was when they finally caught up to me uh they I walked into an ambulance and the EMS was trying to calm me down. So they uh, injected me with Haldol, uh, which is um, an, an, an antipsychotic, uh, first generation antipsychotic that they give people to, to sedate them. And um, the challenge is with these antipsychotics, more so with the first generation of them, um, not the second generation, which they describe as atypical antipsychotics. This first generation, um, there's a side effect of giving someone this medicine that can make them have twitches and even um, even go into not just twitches like in your face or your, your, uh, your eyelids or your tongue, um, but maybe even your muscle spasms throughout your body. And uh, it, it can leave you contorted and you can get stuck in this, um, this state where you, you twitch. And mm -hmm. I unfortunately got sent into like a like a convulsing version of this for of this uh, like a very intense I should say version of this experience. And so my uh, you know when they tried to inject me with this stuff in my arm, it didn't take at first, and they didn't see what they expected, so they injected me again and again. And mm -hmm. then I went into like a, a very intense um, twitching experience where my whole body was spasming and wow. I couldn't, couldn't articulate anything. My tongue was just writhing in my, in my mouth and my chin was stuck to my chest. Um, so this was in the ambulance on the way to the hospital in Richmond and MCV. And, um, and yeah, I remember getting to the ER uh, and I was strapped to a gurney. And um, I remember they took me off the gurney and basically I, I felt, you know, I was, fighting for my life fighting my body for my life, you know, mm -hmm. um, but I, I ended up having a, an exchange with two orderlies, two state police and two city cops. Um, okay. Trying, trying to avoid getting into a straitjacket, And right. That lasted like three seconds before I was quartered to a bed. And I spent the so, night there twitching overnight like that because they couldn't give me any more medicine. Gotcha. Well, that's, that's crazy. Sounds a little familiar to me. Um, I have unfortunately also had some hospitalization experiences where uh, police were involved. Um, I wanted to ask you why originally was EMS called? Were, was there like an incident where someone called the police and paramedics on you? What do you mind expanding on that a little bit? Yeah, I can share a little. So it was just that um, I jumped out of a moving car. Um, okay. I felt like I was being taken. My, my, my family came to, uh, to come get me, scoop me up because my girlfriend was concerned about me. Uh, and she called my parents down from two hours away. So when they came, I felt like I was being contained or trapped, um, you know, at this restaurant that we met at. And then they took me, they were going to take me home to my apartment in, my, in their car, but I felt like I was not in control and that I was being, uh, I felt distrustful of my family. So I jumped out of the car 
It was running around in traffic. And at that point, I think someone called the police and mm-hmm. um, they were trying to find me, but I would, um, and I, earlier in that summer, I would get on top of the buildings, the office buildings, the college office buildings or lecture buildings. Okay. So you, you were in college at the time? Yeah, that's right. I was in college. So I would, okay. I would get on top of these lecture buildings to take pictures of the sunset and sunrise. So for hours, they couldn't find me because I was watching them scramble around the courtyard looking for me <laughs> on the ground. Um, but eventually I just surrendered and came, came down and, you know, walked to the ambulance. Actually, I remember uh, waiting for them to find me in the courtyard of this one, one lecture building uh, while I started to take my clothes off. And that's something that happens a lot with people that go through this sort of experience. It's like a spiritual emergency, they call it sometimes in the, in the book, the DSM. Um, when you, you just, you have a, this kind of crisis, you feel like you you need to shed your skin or shed your clothes or, or somehow like molt. Um, and hmm. so that's what, that's the experience that I had. Uh, and then they, when that, when that happened, I think someone else may have called the police because I was taking my shirt off. Which is right. a thing to see someone do. Right. Uh, and then I remember the police officer was very kind and he walked me to the ambulance and that's where the, the, the injection started. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so I, spent, I spent two weeks in the hospital then. Okay. And, yeah. Okay. Wow. So you, you'd had this like pretty wild experience on the college campus. Police and paramedics were called and they brought you to the hospital. They fucked mm-hmm. up by giving you too much of the medication, which just made things worse. Um, and so at that point you were held for two weeks. Was that under a court order of some kind or? It was. Yeah. I woke up yeah. in the, the next morning, I think, um, in, in the psych ward and I woke up, uh, strapped to the bed and they had like, I was in some sort of IV drip. Uh, and I remember like as I play it back in my mind now, I can I can feel the nurse over my left shoulder doing something, which I perceive as like to give me something to make me alert. Enough for me to see that there was uh, like officials in the room, mm-hmm. and uh, I had a representative who was speaking on my behalf because I couldn't speak. But I remember that it was who turns out to have been a judge say that um, I was going to be in this hospital for uh, up to 180 days or until I took the medicine or wow. else I'd be further institutionalized. Wow, that is some crazy shit. Yeah, that's extremely scary. So what like, what was going through your mind at that point? Where were you like, I'm just gonna take this medicine so I can get out of here? That would have been my personal panic. reaction. <laughs> just panic, I mean, imagine taking the medicine as, as your doctor prescribes, wake up and then this whole escapade happens and now you're being, your freedom's been taken away. That was absolutely right. sheer panic. Absolutely. So I started to get, I started to get um, upset and then I remember falling back asleep. So I assume they turned the other drip back on, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but then I woke by up the, the next day. Uh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, by the way, think of how for, for people. And just so you know, Jeff, um, I, I have had a similar experience to the one that you're describing and something mm-hmm. that always stands out to me when I think back on it is how unethical and strange it is that mm-hmm. someone cannot even be deemed to be, mentally coherent or lucid, and yet you're still having to appear before judges and court officials Mm -hmm. and all these different specialists and things like that. It really feels as if you have no agency or or Mm -hmm. control over the situation. 
And for me personally, that that was one of the most terrifying aspects of things. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah. so that was a very intense example of a manic episode. Um, mm -hmm. Is that your only full manic episode that you've had? Or were you oh, able no. to? Oh, I've okay. had plenty. I've had plenty okay. over the years. You know, some of them um, induced by. Well, now I understand I have a, a caffeine dependence. You know, but I didn't realize that for almost two decades. You know, uh, it's just embarrassing. I didn't have that awareness. But um, <laughs> yeah, some having too much Coca Cola. Yeah, that's that's one of the in in the things that incites a hypomanic episode in me. Uh, I I sometimes smoke marijuana, uh, but mm -hmm. I don't. You know, fortunately, uh, I have cut that habit up um, dramatically. And that when I was younger, I used to experience what I. It's kind of similar to hypomania, having a a, a weed high. Um, mm -hmm. It's somewhat similar. You get similar, similar, similar stimulation, and you get really, I get uh, really creative depending on the strain. But yeah. now that now that I'm older, it doesn't affect me the same way. Probably because I'm on more medicine. Um, but it's something that you know I did long, I do long for, like I used to experience it when I was younger. So yeah. the, the marijuana and the caffeine sometimes contribute to it, but more often than that is when I don't sleep. Uh, sleep is the biggest indicator, or uh, I don't know what the or catalyst for a hypomanic episode for me. If I sleep less than five hours, guaranteed I'm going to be hypomanic the next day. Yeah. I'm like 100% yeah. guaranteed, uh, which basically means I'm going to wake up uh, moving about like one and a half speed. Um, everything is urgent. You know, I'm talking fast. I'm thinking fast. It's a rush of ideas. A lot of them, so, some of them brilliant, you know, uh, so, mm -hmm. but, but all of them, um, uh, infatuating, you know, like you, they're all fascinating and to me anyway. Um, yeah. and that's just the nature of, uh, of hypomania for me. I get impulsive and, and so on, but. Right. So sleep, I, I, and, I, I, I Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I didn't want to cut you off. I was just going to say that sleep disruptions are also a big indicator for me. Uh, mm -hmm. when, when I feel that hypomania coming on, it's like I sleep like three hours or less a night yeah. and I wake up just feeling totally energized and like ready to go. And that's not a good yeah. sign. It's, I know it sucks too, because you feel so good, but you know that it's, it's a precursor for feeling out of control, you know, and that's, that's the worst part about it is like ha having a hypomanic episode when it doesn't result, it doesn't graduate into mania. It's like, a, yeah, you know, it's mm. actually kind of nice. Uh, so long as it's, you know, not out of control. Um, but then when you, when you know that what's going to happen is it's going to go out of control or it's going to disrupt what your plan was for the week or day, you're like, you're like, I, I sometimes get like, oh, not again, you know, here we go again. It's just another mm -hmm. ride. And like, I'm not getting, yeah into this right now you know hello i would prefer to be sleeping exactly so when i so now i know how important well, i've known how important sleep was since i got discharged uh shortly after when i finally came down they always discharged me too early that's that's the that's the one thing but so this um yeah. the the incident where um you were in there for two weeks that was back in like mm -hmm. what like 2002 yeah 2003 2003 okay so have, were you ever hospitalized since then or have you? Oh, yeah, several times. Keep... Oh, wow. Okay. Several times. And it's always because of a medication problem. Okay. Like, it's always a medication. And it's like, you know, they need to make tweaks in my medication regimen. Um, 
you know, to help control the condition as it evolves and as I get older. Uh, but sometimes they make mistakes. So I remember one time in 2012, I believe, yeah, 12, um, I, I, uh, I had a oral surgery. No, I had a um, sinus infection. Two different times, I guess, has happened, right? In 2012, <laughs> I had a sinus yeah. infection and they gave me an a antibiotic that was penicillin-based, which I wasn't allergic to. It's called Augmentin. Um, and I, I think, and it gave me, it started to cause me to disassociate. So mm -hmm. I started to lose my grip on reality then. Uh, and then later I got, um, oral surgery, I had a tooth taken out or something like this, and they gave me an antibiotic and, and I started to experience similar effects. Um, and, uh, and so I knew after having it the first time, I was like, oh, I have to be careful now. I can't work like this, you know, but mm -hmm. that, that was another hospitalization. I remember, I mean, that was, that was kind of embarrassing. But, um, but yeah, you know, the EMS was called and they, they took me in. Uh, yeah. My, yeah. And I mean, for, for the audience, I mean, let's be clear, like you're a successful guy, right? I mean, you, you're very intelligent. I, I know that yeah, you, um, you, you work a steady job that you, yeah. is not easy. I, I don't know how much detail you want to get into about that. Yeah, I work in tech. I work yeah. in tech. I'm a product manager, so I lead uh, usually lead mobile app teams. Um, so, yeah, I have a very stressful job, and it's I think it's rare too to to have a leadership role uh, and have this sort of condition inside of a in, you know in corporate America. So I, I yeah. recognize that that's something that um, I take on more more stress than I think I should, frankly, and uh, it's something I, I, I grapple with all the time. Mm -hmm. I uh, I can relate to that too. Yeah. Yeah, but I've been hospitalized since uh, another, another, uh, like 10 years later, whatever it was, nine, seven, seven years later, um, I, I decided to come off my medicine, um, because okay. I was smoking way too much weed and I had been prescribed Lexapro again, uh, cause I was severely depressed. This is after my father was dying. My mom had breast cancer, man's at work, a bunch of stuff was going on. And so I got on the antidepressant again, cause we know it works and I got on a low dose, but, um, but I was also smoking a lot of weed at the time and self-medicating and uh, mm -hmm. it made me really paranoid and the mania was really intense and uh, it got out of control to the point where I was distrustful of everyone, including my doctors. So I decided mm -hmm. that the medications were not helping uh, and I was uh, self uh, medicated with weed better than I was with the medications, which, you know, the reality okay. was probably wasn't instinctually accurate. Um, you know, some of the, there's some effect that marijuana has, it's has an anticonvulsant sort of sedating effect or numbing effect uh, for me. Um, so they give you anticonvulsant, anti-seizure medicine. Uh, when you have this condition, we call it a mood stabilizer sometimes. So I take a pill called Lamictal or Lamitrogene. Mm -hmm. um, that they usually prescribe to people who are epileptic. And yeah. similarly, they give marijuana to people who are epileptic. So there's some, there's some common thread there that, that works, but- <laughs> We're not doctors, but- uh, Yeah, we, we know what they tell us. You've observed yeah. that correlation is what you're saying. 100%, there's something there. <laughs> uh, but the challenge with marijuana is it's not a, you can't get a, enough supply of the same strain. So the, the condition, yeah. the, the, the effects of it, very dramatically. But anyway, um, I got hospitalized because once I came off the medicine, I was fine for a while. Uh, but then I got, I went to a new doctor 
got my brain scan, they found that I had had a traumatic brain injury, or they called it an abnormal brain scan from a car accident mm. uh, years earlier. Wow. Actually, yeah, anyway, so um, I, I got rear-ended on the toll road and hit my head, rear-ended by a truck and hit my head on the roof of my car, ceiling of my car. Um, and I hit the roll bar. So it just put a hole in the top of my brain. Wow. And, yeah. Uh, I went to the ER and the doctor then told me, uh, go home, you're fine. So I never mm. got any sort of med- medication or like treatment for that. Yeah. Um, that, and it's because probably the medicine that I was on was masking the, the, the symptoms of it. But at that point, when that happened, I started smoking more weed mm-hmm. um, and, and irritability started to take over too. So it definitely had an effect on me that wasn't really assessed until a full three years later. That was 2015 was the accident. 2018 when I got my brain scanned. And that doctor that scanned my brain at a very popular clinic that I, whose name I won't mention, um, she made a mistake. And I had told her all my medication history and told her, you know, that I'd been taking Abilify, this atypical antipsychotic. And she didn't, she changed my anticonvulsant from lamictal to trileptal uh, or oxycarbazepine is the generic. Okay. Um, so she replaced my anticonvulsant. She told me that based on this DNA swab test, this gene site test, uh, my DNA was contraindicated for the medication that I had been on, both mm-hmm. lamictal and Abilify. So she said, here, you should take this one instead, uh, trileptal instead of that lamictal, and you should use these vitamins uh, to self-regulate and, you know, see how it goes, let me know. And it's very dangerous to take someone who takes an antipsychotic off of their medication. Um, yeah. It's quite literally, it will cause psychosis. So that's what happened. And unfortunately, the same thing that happened with Lexapro happened again, where uh, this time it wasn't the same doctor who was increasing the dosage, but when I would get, uh, when they'd come find me somewhere, you know, in my neighborhood, uh, well, someone would call because, you know, this, this guy's uh, clearly not doing well or behaving erratically. Right. Um, they'd bring me in and then they would increase the dose of trileptol. But it wasn't that I wasn't taking the medication. It was that the medication was bad for me. And that's mm-hmm. one of the just tragic things about this condition is Really, the medication needs to be monitored so closely, and you have to really fine tune this and figure out exactly right dosages that work for you and and the balance. And you have to maintain the regimen, or else it's you know it can all fall apart. Uh, Especially if you leave it to people that don't know you, other doctors, to Mm. to mess with. So, and they would rather just over medicate you rather than you know trust your 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 word for what you're supposed to be on. And you had been in this, um, you basically. Um, from the timeline that you've established, you're saying that these medication issues have been ongoing for like two decades at this point, right? Where um, 2003, you said, was the initial manic episode where you were put on medication. And even years after that, they're, they're still trying to figure out like what's the best cocktail of medication for, for you. Yeah, so I should go, maybe it'd be helpful to, to like describe what I take. Um, but I, I okay. took most of this medication for most of my adult life. Um, but the challenge is when they, when a different doctor takes over, they, the, the least, at least this doctor, uh, when she took over, she was skeptical of um, my diagnoses, but she also wasn't seeing me stable. And when mm-hmm. I came to her, I had been self-medicating with marijuana. I was going through an extreme amount of stress. Like everyone was like, how are you still standing after losing your dad, getting divorced, losing your job, mom's got cancer. 
heart attack in your family, like a car accident. It was just one thing after another. So I was really overwhelmed at the time. And that's not usually my condition, you know, my, my state. So when I came to her, I was really just not myself, um, not, not well. And my things were so stressful in my life. But then also, I hadn't been on my medication. So she took me from scratch and tried to rebuild me. Rebuild me. And so that's where the mistake was made. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other incidents where I was, I, I dealt with uh, dis, disassociating were caused by other medications that I needed to take for, you know, a virus or, or not, uh, 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 an infection or uh, yeah. preemptive antibiotics. And that's, that's so interesting. I, more sensitive to other medications. You, you're like the first person I think I've spoken to who's said that you've had something triggered like that by an antibiotic or something. I wasn't even aware that that was possible. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. They, they described it as, uh, as dehydration is what they said officially. But I'm like, nah, <laughs> they didn't like, that. like I know exactly what caused it because it happened again, you know? You know, so, I, I feel like um, there were a couple of times when I tried to voluntarily go into a hospital and mm-hmm. that I was always um, diagnosed with dehydration, like severe dehydration yeah. that's making them act weird. Um, and then I, they would put me on, a, um, I, I guess, just an IV with water in it. And um, eventually, after a couple of hours, I would get pretty bored of waiting around for an actual evaluation and I would just sign myself out. Um, So that worked a couple of times. And then eventually I I did get into a situation where I was detained by police. So um, it's, uh, yeah, it gets pretty intense, but that's really interesting about the antibiotics and these other like things that you wouldn't expect that could contribute to bipolar symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's more than it's over my head, you know, it's above above my pay grade or whatever. Um, I tried to keep up with, um, I try to understand and interpret what the doctors are saying to me and I ask questions about it um, to the point I think where they think I'm a bit of a headache uh, like my current neuropsychiatrist doesn't think mm-hmm. um, but you have to you have to take ownership of this stuff because if you don't you know, what, what I have seen is that um, they either get over medicated into just oblivion and dysfunction um, or you'll get what I call medically poisoned I don't see how there's yeah. any other way to look at it you know, and they, they love to just not take responsibility for what, what they do with the medications because you're the one putting it in your mouth, right? And it's mm-hmm. your fault that you're dehydrated, quote unquote. You know? <laughs> quote unquote like, dehydrated. Yeah, it's like, well, if the medicine made me feel better, then I wouldn't need to find some other way to call, to call myself that, right? If, but if yeah. the medication's making me worse, then what am I supposed to do? Just keep taking the medication? Like at some point you have to have some, some audience for the fact that you're self-reporting that you're not well. And they're so reluctant to trust a patient it's ridiculous yeah you have to self-advocate so hard sometimes to get psychiatrists to listen to you um, because they think they know everything i've worked Mm. with probably um probably four or five psychiatrists in the last few years um i just for various reasons i have to switch psychiatrists because of like insurance changes Mm. and things like that but um, it's like every one of them wants to like get their hands into whatever I'm taking. Like if I'm on stuff that makes me feel stable and good, for some reason, there's a, a doctor, a psychiatrist will say, 
oh, well, you know, I think you should try this. Like, I, yeah, you're currently on Lamictal, but let's put you back on lithium. And I'm like, no, because lithium gives me terrible side effects and I hate it. And then the response is, well, lithium is a really good drug. Are you sure? Oh, yeah, they love to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Lithium is like the most widely studied uh, mood stabilizer out there. And it's like, yeah, I know, asshole. But what I'm saying is yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get to put it in my body. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, come on. Um, so, yeah, that self-advocacy is huge when you're working with doctors. Um, I had a conversation with someone else for this podcast recently, and uh, she was saying the same thing. So, um, yeah, kind of standing up for yourself, making sure that you're your own advocate, making sure you're communicating. And, I mean, for me personally, I feel like I can't be 100% transparent with any psychiatrist because I get worried about them overreacting or wanting to make radical changes to my medication or recommending that I go in for inpatient treatment or, or things like that. So it's like this really weird, complicated balancing act of I want to make sure that I'm well, I want to make sure I'm taking the right medications, but at the same time, I'm not going to trust any single or every single um, piece of information that gets provided to me by the psychiatrist. So where does that leave you? I mean, it leads yeah. to years and years of trying to find effective regimens of medication to be on. And it feels mm -hmm. like at times it, it it's constantly changing. Like I, I think the longest I've been on a single cocktail of medication without any changes being made to it is maybe one year, I would say. Um, yeah, which I, I don't know. Does that sound like a long time or a short time to you? That's a short. I mean, I, I have, I've been always lucky to find what worked for me pretty quickly, you know, within a couple of years. So I, I think that's a short time in my life. I've, I've been on the same medication, um, in slightly different doses for, let's see, 2007 to 18. So that would have been 11 years. Okay. Yeah. And you, but you were still having some issues with hospitalization and mania during those times too, right? So, yeah, I still have issues. I mean, I still experience minor or mild fluctuations. Like even though you're on the medication, doesn't mean that the fluctuations go away, right? Um, but uh, the hospitalizations were caused by other medications I took for other other, you know, sicknesses, right. not right. by the medications for bipolar disorder. Those have been really reliable for me. You know, I take. Hmm. Uh, I take Lamictal, I take Abilify, uh, I, I should say, I have taken Lamictal, Abilify, and Vivance for the majority of my adult life. Mm -hmm. um, I also now take Seroquel, uh, which is uh, another atypical antipsychotic, um, and Vivance is the, the amphetamine that I take for ADHD. Right. I take an amphetamine as well. Um, I, I take Adderall XR. I started taking it about a year ago because I noticed that all of these different medications that I'm on, I, I actually also take Lamictal. I, I'm currently on Lamictal, Buspirone, Vralar, and then I take Klonopin as needed, and I take Adderall XR as needed. And anyway, um, the reason I started the Adderall was because I noticed that a lot of these medications I was on seemed to be causing brain fog which um, for just for the audience, it, it, you know, it's like a lack of focus. It's not being able to concentrate well, not retaining information as well as you normally would. 
And I finally got one of my psychiatrists um, or the psychiatrist who I was working with at the time to add that to my cocktail of medications. And it's worked pretty well. Like I, um, I, I think back to when I wasn't on an amphetamine medication and I'm like, oh, wow, that, that was really what that was like, because that sucked. Like I had, yeah. I had no energy. I couldn't concentrate. Um, things were all sorts of messed up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I made, you know, I got diagnosed when I was 21 and uh, I changed medications and, you know, I was, I was on lithium and Zyprexa, Vilify, uh, Lamictal. Um, clonopin I would take every night too and it just wrecked my memory and motivation I didn't start taking in the amphetamine until 2007 so college was very difficult for me I, in the end I graduated after nine years uh, but you know I had like three or four sophomore years of college you know, because <laughs> medication changes were very difficult to to wow. sustain you know while you're trying to retain any information let alone wake up for school you know just a very difficult uh, experience being a, a college student with your changing schedule, shifting schedules and priorities all the time when you need to have stability. So that's something that yeah. I took away. It's like, yeah, if someone's in college and they're going through this condition and getting on, on medication, they need to have like, you know, uh, regular classes at the same times, you know, get yourself a Monday, Wednesday, Friday and mm -hmm. show up at the same time every day, but in the, in yeah. the afternoon, not in the morning, because you're going to sleep through it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, having that structure is important. And I feel like college is such a strange time uh, for bipolar people who do uh, attend mm -hmm. university and things like that. Because around that, you know, um, like 18 to 22 year old time frame is when um, symptoms of, of bipolar disorder and lots of other mental illnesses start to manifest for a lot of people, not all the time, but like that's kind of typically what, what they're looking at during that time frame. And I think a lot of people, a lot of college kids, myself included back when I was in school, um, needed to be medicated for things, but weren't just because they didn't know of the resources that were available or yep. they thought that they didn't have a problem. Or in my case, um, you sort of know there's a problem, but I was self-medicating with the drugs and alcohol instead of working with an actual uh, licensed doctor who perhaps could have uh, intervened and prevented a lot of the trials and tribulations that I ultimately ran into um, mm -hmm. because exactly. of that. It's sad because people end up self-medicating because they don't know that the medication exists to fix the, the, the challenges they're right. feeling. You know? Well, one of the other things for me is I had a really big stigma against psychotropic medication for, um, for a long time because I would listen to people like Joe Rogan uh, back, in, back in the day when I still listened to his podcast in the early years. And they, they would always talk about like, oh, well, if you take a mood stabilizer or an antidepressant, you know, it's going to change your personality and you're no longer ever going to be yourself again. And it causes all these crazy things. And it's like, well, yeah, it's a psychotropic medication, so it will impact your neurology, but it's going to impact it in a way that prevents you from ending up getting arrested or killing yourself potentially. So yeah. I, you know, I was aware that those medications were out there. I was afraid to use them. I didn't want to use them and I didn't seek out help uh, for a really long time. Um, I was actually initially 
forced to see a psychiatrist um, by my parents right after I moved back in with them after college because they realized, oh no, like Hunter is completely off the rails. Like he needs to be talking to a psychiatrist. And then at that point I got formally diagnosed as bipolar type one and things continued going south. And um, just a few months later, I, I found myself um, uh, civilly committed in a psychiatric hospital, which a um, little bit different than an involuntary hospitalization, but they can be thought of in a very similar way. Um, so like, like you were saying earlier in the episode, um, you know, I also had to like talk to a lawyer and like meet with a judge and stuff um, after I got brought in by police and it, it was just like a complete train wreck. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's such a departure from what you, from normal life, you know, to all of a sudden lose your freedom because someone else, it seems like someone else decided that you're not well, right? Well, at least when you're in psychosis, it seemed like that to me. Um, I'd never been locked up before, never had never been arrested, but, um, you know, having that experience and having had, having had it since then, it's just, you know, it's like, especially when I didn't do anything to deserve it. It's not like I did something wrong, but now here yeah. I am getting locked up again, you know, mm -hmm. I took my, that is, especially when you're taking medicine as, as prescribed, it's so frustrating to feel like, why am I getting, why is this happening again? You know? Yeah. Getting locked down. It feels a very punitive in a way, like you're being punished yeah. for something. Exactly. So can we punish the doctors that make the mistakes? Is that possible? <laughs> um, file some malpractice suits or something. Um, yeah. yeah it, it, accountable. It, it's tricky. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, those doctors who are actually working on the psych wards, the psychiatrists who are on the psych wards and the hospitals are like fucking useless. In, in my own experience, like they don't give a fuck. They're going to put you on whatever the standard medication that they put every other agitated bipolar person on. And they'll say, all right, take this and uh, let you out in a few days. And yeah. it's like, it, it's just not very moralizing. It, it's not, it's not a good situation to be in. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's so hard with the doctors because there are lots of good doctors. I mean, they they obviously like got into oh, this yeah. field for a good reason. They were vetted to get through it all the all the training and such, and they have their own practice, etc. But um, that I don't know how it's even remotely possible for them to interpret what's going on with a person that they've just met or know very very limited amount. Mm -hmm. I've known for a very limited amount of time in fifteen minute windows. Yeah, like you can see me for 15 minutes and you're going to change my neurology with a pill. Yeah, cool. and I think people don't realize that. It's like, I think a lot of neurotypical people, the average person would think that if you're in a psychiatric hospital, it would be like 24 seven, like working with doctors, working with therapists, working with nurses. And it really isn't that way. It's like you're sitting around for however long of an amount of period that you're supposed to be there for. And you really do, just like you said, you talk to a doctor for like 15 minutes total, maybe the entire time that you're there. And they, they reach a very quick judgment on what they think you need to be prescribed just to get you to uh, mellow out and hopefully get back to baseline uh, quickly. And it, yeah, it, it's, I, I don't know, man. I, I feel like it's a total grift 
Um, I, I just think it's a, a scam in our society because they they charge you what like anywhere from one thousand to three thousand dollars a day to be in there, and then the patient is financially liable for that regardless of if they wanted to go in or not. And that's something that has never sat well with me either. That's crazy. Yeah, I've been blessed to have insurance when I've been hospitalized. Um, I haven't had to deal with paying out of pocket for, except for I had one hospitalization, forced hospitalization in Florida a couple of years ago. Um, and that was a mess. That was its own, those people, the Floridians. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> Mental health care in Florida is not that great. It sounds like you're uh, saying. Well, like I got hospitalized. Uh, I got taken to the hospital by the by the sheriff or the deputies. Um, right. And then I got hospitalized for five days. I got Baker acted, which is like a mandatory five-day stay. And okay. then I got discharged. But no one told me that I had charges pending. Like, no what? One told me. So I, I do a like a... Uh, background search on myself uh, about a year later when I'm interviewing finally I recovered um, and I'm like the hell is this I'm like like, I'm being, like, for, like interviewing for a job is when you yeah came across- yeah what yeah so, so you I had was, I was I had no no one ever told me that I had charges pending They're like, and so I called the police department in Florida and they were like uh, yeah you need to come turn yourself in man yeah <laughs> like you you're, about? you've been on the lam dude get down here yeah Oh like, my well, god! Get pulled over when you get here, or else you're going to jail. I'm like, what did I? I was sick. What were the <laughs> what happened to me? What what disorderly happened? Like, conduct and resisting arrest nonviolently? Oh my god! So what ultimately happened with that? Did you like pay a fine? Did you have to do jail time? Like, no. I, how did I, that happen? I had a I had a lawyer uh, negotiated down the probation, and the, to to me, and I was still the massive exception to this, like probation. I was sick. Why am I getting penalized for this? I shouldn't have to do yeah. anything. Get the whole thing dismissed, you know? You, you were brought uh, but, to a hospital and got the treatment that society thought that you needed. Why would you also yeah. have criminal charges on top of that? Exactly. You know? It's so, wild. Anyway, it's just, uh, it got it got dismissed. It actually happened right as COVID was going, going oh on. Oh my God. So I was on probation during COVID. Did that make it a little easier during- since you weren't able to go outside or do anything cool? I mean, I, you know, I guess yes, um, but at that time I was just, you know, the medication wasn't right for me. It wasn't wasn't uh, going well for me yet, and I was uh, uh, really anxious. So thank, thankful, very grateful for Sarah Quill and the changes that I made to that uh, during <laughs> that time because it calmed me down tremendously. I was so afraid of going to jail, you know. I was just, yeah, I was really scared. <laughs> I yeah. didn't want to deal with any of this stuff. I just wanted to get back to work. That's all I wanted to do, you know? Right. So talk to me a little bit about work. Uh, One of the reasons that I invited you on is because I know that you're super, super passionate about workplace discrimination issues against people with mental illness. And I know that um, over the last year or so, that's something that's really been kind of ramping up uh, for you. Um, what would you like to speak to those points at all? Um, because yeah, like we were saying earlier, you know, that. it's like when, when people think of mentally ill people, they probably don't imagine, oh, well, this person has a white collar job and mm-hmm. is working and contributing to society in a huge way. Yeah. Yeah. This is a good topic. We probably would end up going really deep into it, but, um, but yeah, I can give you a little bit of a teaser. How about that? Okay. 
Uh, I only say that because I'm, it's, it, we're getting late in my, my evening now and I don't want to wake up hypermanic tomorrow. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, if you, if you have anything that you want to share before we wrap up, absolutely go for it. Sure. Yeah. But you know, I, I'm lucky I work in tech, um, but I, I did see as I was working um, these last couple of years at one of the larger firms in, out here in Virginia, um, that there weren't a lot of people like me. I didn't find folks that uh, felt like they were neurodivergent or identified and, and disclosed as such. So uh, I was really just kind of ostracized and treated like an oddball, it seemed. So I thought, you know what, like, maybe this is the problem. Maybe the reason why systemic ableism exists is because the people that, um, you know, people that struggle with disabilities aren't the ones that make, get to make and design the products and services that, uh, that we that end up having to consume and use. So I thought, wouldn't that be cool if someone would make a, an incub incubator, like an innovation lab for the neurodivergence? And I went off on this like huge exploration, wild manic, of what it would take to do that. Um, and it came back to it, you know, thinking, well, this seems like it's an opportunity and finding that a lot of companies in, in tech and uh, in big in, big industry are finally coming full circle and realizing, yeah, we need to get some of these folks who are neurodivergent, they mean autistic, into some mm -hmm. roles to help us as analysts. And my whole position is like, well, maybe it's not just that we should be subordinate analysts to some other agenda or some other initiative, but perhaps we should be the ones leading the projects and showing you where, where to shine the light. Right. So that's my, that's my whole thing is like, you know, it's, um, there should like, just because you have a disability shouldn't mean that you can't be in a leadership position. In fact, the, the reality is, these people who are underrepresented in leadership uh, from any any minority group are what um, organizations are who the people that organizations need to be leading. Uh, otherwise, they're going to end up creating the same sort of problems over and over again. So uh, that's that's something that I advocate for. It's like how do we get more people who are disabled into leadership and decision making uh, positions? Uh, because I think that's critical for um, for folks to be in the workforce to like realize that you know they don't have to be uh, to feel like they're um, you know, not fulfilled or, or employed at their skill level uh, and don't have the, they wouldn't have their, couldn't have the potential in a large organization to, to, to you know, to step into a, a more job scope. So that, those are things that I try to advocate for and, and uh, try to um, try to be a leader myself so that I can inspire others to do the same. Yeah. So do you try to be like very vocal about your disability in the workplace yeah. or do you keep it so, I did, I so disclose. you don't have any problem. No, no, I don't. I disclose. I think it's important because it's who I am. You know, um, the diagnosis is a diagnosis, right? Like it's a medical term. Uh, but this thing about me that makes me have these cyclical moods uh, and, um, you know, is the same thing, that, the same thing that shows me other insights and, and dots to connect that other people don't see. So it's hard to, for me to disambiguate this medical disorder uh, from my lived experience. So for me, you know, when I describe myself as, as bipolar, um, I'm telling someone about myself, you know, and so mm -hmm. I want them to know. And also I've read research that says that uh, specifically in the autistic community that, you know, when you do disclose a, your, your diagnosis, it helps people understand you better and be more willing to connect uh, and to connect with you. So I've, I found that disclosing has, um, has helped me find people um, that are sympathetic, uh, people, other people with disabilities, and mm -hmm. also help me weed out the people that are not, you know, I might as well just use it as a filtering mechanism. 
So um, you've mentioned autism a couple of times. Are, are you on an autism spectrum or are you just using that as a point of reference for like other research that's been conducted about mental health? Um, yeah, it's a good question. So I'm not, a, I'm not having been diagnosed with uh, as being on the spectrum. Um, I do have severe ADHD. And I think the reason why I call myself neurodivergent is because my ADHD is, is significant. Uh, and I think it's a huge part of my identity too. I understand that ADHD um, is uh, another highly, was it a uh, comorbid condition? Actually, it's like the most comorbid condition of anything else, as I understood. Yeah. Um, but it is one of the ones that they use uh, uh, that is uh, um, I, I'm, I'm losing my, my train of thought here because I'm getting tired. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> no, you're, you're fine. You're doing great. Uh, but the, the paradigm of neurodiversity uh, um, lets or includes an ADHD as an expression of neurodivergence. I read something recently actually on this, uh, this cool blog in Patreon. Um, this, this autistic researcher, I don't know her name, but her, she goes by Trauma Geek. Uh, okay. And she, she called attention to like the different kinds of neurodivergence. Um, and she put bipolar disorder uh, as one that's like uh, caused by trauma. She, so she put it aside to say like, this is this kind and then autism and uh, ADHD and other, other uh, conditions or diagnoses or lived experiences uh, are innate to who the person is. Uh, and that's something that I sensed, you know, I always wondered it, well, am I neurodivergent because, um, because I'm bipolar? I definitely know that I'm different. You know, there's something about me that's different palpably, um, you know, interpersonally. And I, I detect it and others do too. Uh, but is it the bipolar disorder that makes me as such? I really identify with that, with that diagnosis. Um, but maybe it's the ADHD that does. And so that's something, those are two qualifiers. And they just, to me, they just mean, um, that, uh, that my neurology just varies from other people's and it's uh, equally important and part of the human genome. So I shouldn't feel ashamed of it. Um, right. But, I, but I, I referenced the autistic community because uh, the paradigm of neurodiversity was, um, you know, it originated from an autistic researcher that I understand, or the theory did. And it's, Interesting. And it's uh, something that's um, embraced fully by, or more embraced or first embraced by the autistic community before others. That's really interesting. Well, I, I know you said you're getting tired. It is getting a little late where we're at right now. Um, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you would like to mention before we wrap up? Or did you have anything else that you felt like we might have glossed over or any final thoughts? Yeah, the only thing I'll offer is, um, you know, I do have a blog that I'm still building, but if anyone wanted to see or, or uh, read any more of these uh, these sort of rants and tangents that I go on sometimes, <laughs> you're welcome to check me out at bipolarist.com. Yeah, bipolarist.com. And I will put that in the episode description as well. So people can check that out if they would like to. Um, does that mostly focus on uh, neurodivergence in the workplace or is it kind of just like a general blog that you run or? Yeah, so it's a blog I'm building. It's, you know, I intended it to be, uh, to be focused on uh, deshrouding the stigma around bipolar disorder. Um, but I, but I see now there's so many opportunities for us to reinterpret, you know, uh, bipolar disorder and, and other conditions through this lens and frame of neurodiversity and the interact, the intersections between, uh, those folks with diagnoses or these different lived experiences 
in systems like in the workforce uh, are really interesting because you see how someone with a different perspective is running into a problem because of some accident. That, that accident meaning like um, the ablest train run run off the rails, you know, or like or a, run, a runaway train, a runaway ablest train has been created <laughs> because people don't really know any better. You know, and it, it's like, you know, I, I see, I see uh, some of the challenges I face in the workplace is just accidents, you know, uh, accidents mm -hmm. of ignorance. So, hmm. um, so yeah, I, I, I think people are overall uh, very humane and like want to be uh, more supportive and more conscientious and sympathetic in the workplace. Uh, so those are topics that I do want to explore. But overall, like I just think that um, I'm really fascinated by this the concept of neurodiversity and learning a lot more about it every day. Uh, cool. and, I, and I and I hope that other people will take interest in it because I think it ends up informing a lot more connection between people, whether they be quote unquote neurotypical or or divergent. I think it just helps us understand that everyone's body is different and that's okay. And everyone belongs here. You know, those are ideas I think that are really worth spreading. That sounds like some really awesome content. So that is on bipolarist.com. Um, again, I'll put that in the episode description. And Jeff, thank you so much for speaking with me tonight. I think this has been a phenomenal conversation. Um, I feel like I definitely learned a lot and I, I think that it'll be really informative for a wider audience too. So I, I just wanted to say thank you so much. It's been awesome having you on and I really appreciate your time. Walter, thank you for the invite. Oops, my alarm's went off. Thank you for the invite. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to your audience. Um, so thanks, man. This is really, it's flattering to be invited on the show like this. So I appreciate it. hope you all enjoyed listening to that we had a lot of fun when we were recording that episode and we were both laughing about it after we ended the recording because it just it went in a lot of different directions and I think we both ended up discussing some things that we weren't initially planning on but that's okay that's the beauty of doing a long form extended format sort of show so this was another episode of Bipolar Recorder. If you would like to support the show, please visit our website at BipolarRecorder.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Bipolar Recorder. I'm also on Twitter at H.H. Keegan. As always, thanks so much for listening. Bipolar Recorder is a listener-supported show. To help keep the show running, consider checking out our Patreon page or visiting BipolarRecorder.com to support via PayPal. Unless otherwise stated, the hosts and guests on Bipolar Recorder are not licensed mental health professionals. Bipolar Recorder is not a substitute for therapy or professional medical intervention. If you are having a mental health crisis, please contact your local emergency services.